Turn to me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke 21, verses 5 through 38, verses you are hopefully becoming familiar with by this point. Uh, if you are using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find uh, these verses beginning on page 880. As we've seen, this passage begins with Jesus telling his disciples that the day is coming when the temple that they so admire, this, this impressive building with noble stones and ornaments, that this impressive building will one day be destroyed. That there is coming a day when not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. And in response to this surprising announcement, Jesus' disciples ask him, Teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? On Sunday, we looked at the first part of Jesus' reply to that question. We saw that the first thing that, that Jesus tells his disciples is that the end will not come at once. There will be false messiahs, and there will be wars, and there will be natural disasters, and there will be terrors of various kinds, but the end will not come at once. This morning, I want us to look at the second part of Jesus' answer. Because having told his disciples that the end will not come immediately, Jesus now gives them their marching orders, so to speak. He, he tells them what it is that they are to be doing in their intervening days. What they are to be doing until that day when Jerusalem falls. And we will see that Jesus' instruction to his disciples instruct us today as well. Because just as they were waiting for that day of God's judgment when Jerusalem would be destroyed, we now wait for that day when he will return to judge the living and the dead. So let us read it together. Luke chapter 21, beginning at verse 5. This is the very word of God. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And I asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and, not those, and, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding at what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we come before you now humbly asking for your grace, humbly asking that your Holy Spirit would lead us into the truth, and would sanctify us by the truth. But by that truth, we might be fully equipped to bring forth the fruits of righteousness to the praise of your glorious name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our focus this morning is going to be verses 12 through 19. As I said, in these verses, Jesus is instructing his disciples about how they are to live until the day of Jerusalem's destruction. He has told them that the, the temple is going to be destroyed, but he has told them that it's not going to happen at once. And so he now gives them instructions about how they are to live in the intervening days. And we can divide his instructions into four parts. First, Jesus makes a prediction. He then gives his disciples a charge, and he follows this up with some instructions, which he finally ends with a promise. And so we have a, a prediction, a charge, instructions, and a promise. And I'm going to try to make it through all four this morning. So let's begin with Jesus' prediction. We see it there in verse 12. Jesus says, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and to prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. So Jesus is telling his disciples that before the fall of Jerusalem, before the destruction of the temple, his disciples will be persecuted. They will be dragged before various authorities, both religious and political. 
They will be brought before synagogues and they will be dragged to prison. They will be brought before kings and before governors. And he identifies at least some of the they in verse 16. <coughs> Notice what he says. He says, who will do this? Who will lay hands on you? Who will hand you over to the authorities? It will be those closest to you. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. It will not be merely a faceless enemy. But, but parents will be set against children and children against parents. Brother will be set against brother. Friend against friend. And why will there be this division? Why will there be this, this persecution? He tells us that they will be persecuted for my name's sake. Because they are followers of Christ. Because they are His disciples. Because they have aligned themselves with Him. And that is significant. We must see that this is persecution for the sake of the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't merely saying that his disciples are not going to be spared the, the normal hardships of life. That's, that's an important lesson. That's something we need to, to learn. When we, when we come to Christ, when we come under his salvation, we sometimes mistakenly believe, maybe because someone told us, that now life will be easier, that, that now we will avoid the, the normal hardships of life, that the bad things that happen to others will, will no longer happen to us. And that is simply not true. We still live in this present evil age. We still live in this fallen world. We will still experience the groaning of this life. But notice, Jesus is saying more than this. He isn't saying merely that we will not be spared the normal hardships of life. But he is saying that because we are his followers, our hardships will actually be increased. We will not only experience the, the normal hardships of life, but we will experience persecution. This is what he's telling his disciples. He's saying, when you align yourself with me, when you become my follower, my enemies will become your enemies. Those who are about to lay hands on me will lay hands on you. Those who are going to wrongly accuse me will wrongly accuse you. Those who are going to persecute me will persecute you. And ultimately, those who put me to death will put some of you to death as well. You will be hated even as I am Hated. Now think for a moment why it is so important for Jesus' disciples to, to hear this ahead of time, to, to know that this is what is going to unfold. It is important for them to know this so that when the persecutions come, they will be prepared to stand firm. If you think that things are going to be smooth, if you think that things are going to be easy because you are with Jesus, because you're following Him, because He's for you, then the slightest persecution can throw you for a loop. Think of John the Baptist in prison. John the Baptist announced the, the coming of the King, the coming of the Messiah. And when he was thrown in prison and Jesus didn't come to his rescue, he didn't understand. He was perplexed. In fact, he even sent his own disciples to Jesus to say, did I get it wrong? Are you really the one? What's going on here, Jesus? It doesn't make sense. And John had to be reassured by, by Jesus' own testimony. He said, go and tell John what you see. Go and tell him that, yes, the kingdom is here, although not exactly in the way that he was expecting. And so Jesus tells his, his disciples ahead of time that, that they are going to suffer persecution so that they will be prepared to stand when it comes. But if his disciples knew this, if they, if they knew that they were going to suffer persecution, not only would they be prepared to endure they would also be better prepared 
to understand. They would be better prepared to understand. Maybe not the, the exact details. We sometimes get ourselves into trouble by, by trying to explain the exact reason why God has let this or that happen. Maybe you've, you've been there yourself and you're, you're so desperate for an explanation that you try to explain it yourself or you try to get someone else to explain it to you. We, we don't always know exactly why God is, is letting something happen, but we can know this, that if he is sovereign and if he is in control and if he is the one who is letting this happen, then we can know that he is letting it happen for his purpose, for his good purpose. That he is, he is working even for his glory and our good in this moment. And so when, when the persecutions come, we can know that God has, has not let his plan go off the rails, that he has not lost control, that he has not forgotten us, but that even in this, he is working for our good. In fact, he's about to tell his disciples what good he has in mind through these persecutions. But for now, we just simply need to recognize that, that we can trust that if God is in control and if God says, listen, this is what's going to happen, you're going to be persecuted, then we can trust that he has some good purpose in mind. He is not like Stalin sending his, his troops into uh, to their death wave after wave after wave because he sees them as expendable. No, he is for us. And what he calls us to is good. And we need to know this today. Jesus' disciples were going to be arrested. They were going to be dragged before governors. You may be thinking to yourself, well, I've not experienced persecution like that. And in God's providence, we, most of us have not. Most of us have lived a, a life of relative peace. We have, we have enjoyed a, a life of, of relative security. And I want you to hear me say this morning that that's a good thing. That is a blessing. I don't think that we should be embarrassed by the relative peace that we have enjoyed in our life. And I, I certainly don't think we're, we're called to go looking for trouble, to, to stir up the authorities, to be uh, mad at us so that we can be somehow persecuted. That's not what Jesus is, is calling us to. But he, we do need to recognize that if, if we are followers of Christ, we will have enemies in the world. And we will face Persecution. It may not be as intense as the persecution that Christians in other parts of the world or in other parts of history have faced. But we will face persecution. We will be slandered. We will be reviled. We will be hated even. We will be called those who do evil when we stand up for what is right. And I'm sure that you have experienced this in your, your own lives. You have, you have been reviled by that family member who thought that you were intolerant and, and hateful for, for saying that Jesus was the only way. You have been reviled and, and hated by, by maybe co-workers who, who find your, your view of, of morality uh, like a straitjacket, binding and, and unkind. And it will only increase. I, I read stories this week of, of a family who lost custody of their daughter because they would not bow to the, the transgender agenda. Stories like that will increase. I read other stories that we've, we've seen them in the news over the course of the last year of business people who have, who have lost their businesses because they would not bow to the world's agenda. Because they, they continue to, to stand up for what they believed was, was God's calling on their lives. And such stories will only increase. How valuable for us will it be 
If we recognize that Jesus said, my disciples will be persecuted. And not only that we will be persecuted, but that he has some good in mind for the persecution. In fact, notice what he says. This is his charge. He says, this persecution that you face, whether it be intense or, or whether it be light and momentary, this persecution that you face, it is an opportunity. This will be your opportunity to bear witness, Jesus says in verse 13. Think about that word for a moment. Think about that, that word, witness. A witness is, is one who, who testifies. A, a witness is one who, who says what he has seen or what he knows to be true. And this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. He says, you are going to have the opportunity to bear witness. You are going to have the opportunity to say what you have seen and what you know to be true of who I am and of what I came to do. And this is exactly what we see the disciples doing. Turn with me. Keep your uh, finger and, and Luke will be back. But turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Notice what Peter says. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We didn't preach to you stories we made up. We didn't preach to you fables with a, with a powerful motive, memorial. We preached to you the truth. We bore witness. We testified to what we had seen with our own eyes. This is Peter's testimony. He said this gospel, it is based on historic fact. It is, it is based on truth. It is based on what we have seen. John does the same thing. Turn over just one more book to, to 1 John chapter 1. John says much the same thing in his own way. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the things concerning the word of life, the things concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ, these things that we have touched and that we have seen, the things that we ourselves have experienced, this is what we testify to you. This is what we invite you to believe and to receive and to, to come into our communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not cleverly devised myths, not, not stories that we made up, but rather things that we have seen. This is the testimony of the early church. They, they bore witness to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. He is the Son of God come in the flesh. He is the one whom the Father said, this is my Son. With Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. He is the one who was unjustly condemned. He is the one who was delivered up for our trespasses. He is the one who was raised again on the third day and appeared to many. Even 500 at one time, Paul says. And if those things are not true, then there is no gospel. If he was not raised in space and time, if, if we were not eyewitnesses of these things, then there is no forgiveness of sins. But because these things are true, we have a gospel to proclaim. And as we think about ourselves as witnesses following in the footsteps of those first disciples, we must remember that the message that we proclaim is not the message of our experience, but the message of Jesus' experience. It's what is true of Him that we proclaim. I think we sometimes get in trouble because we want to proclaim to people our experience. And there's a place for that. There's a, there's a place for telling our story. 
But at the heart of the gospel is not our story, but his story. How do you know that God loves you? How do you know that God is, is for you? If you try to answer that question based upon your story, you might be led astray. Because chances are you're not going to write persecution and suffering into the story of God's love for you. But what does Paul say? This is how we know. This is how we know beyond reasonable doubt that God loves us. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so when you are struggling, where do you go? You go to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. He is at the center of the gospel. And when you share the gospel with others, you take them to Jesus Christ because he is the center of the gospel. Jesus Christ. We are witnesses to Him. Witnesses of who He is. Witnesses of what He has done. And notice what we're told here. Jesus tells us that the persecutions that we suffer for the sake of His name, when we suffer, when we are reviled, when we are hated because of, of Jesus, that is our opportunity to bear witness to Him. But how does that work? How is it that persecutions afford us the opportunity to bear witness to our Savior? How do they, bear, how do they give us this opportunity to, to <coughs> testify to the truth of who Jesus is? Well, in an obvious way, they give us a platform. That they give us an opportunity to speak. That was especially true for the early disciples. When they were dragged before kings and when they were dragged before the synagogue, they had to make a defense. They, they actually had to speak. Think of Peter and, and Stephen in the early chapters of Acts. Think of, of Paul later in Acts as he stands before Felix and later uh, Festus and, and Agrippa. They are actually on trial. They literally have to make a defense. And so they have an opportunity to bear witness. But there's another sense in which even those who are not dragged before courts will be given the opportunity to bear witness because of their persecutions. Peter talks about it in, in 1 Peter chapter 3. He tells us to be what? To be ready to give a defense for the hope that is ours. When we endure the persecutions that come with hope, with the hope of, of knowing that God is with us and that Jesus is for us and that he is working all things together for our good, when we endure with hope, we will have opportunity to, to confess the reason for our hope. And that, that word, make a defense, that makes some people nervous. And they think of Tim Keller, they think of Francis Schaeffer, and they think, I'm not like that. I'm not an apologist like that. I could, I could never make those arguments. And let me, let me put your mind at ease. I am thankful for men like that. That is not what Peter is calling you to in 1 Peter chapter 3. What Peter is calling you to in 1st chapter 3, he says, you need to be ready to confess Christ as the reason for your hope. Why do I have a hope? Because Jesus is risen from the dead. Why do I have a hope? Because he was delivered up for my trespasses and raised again for my justification. I have a hope because Jesus is my Lord and my Savior and my King. And the one who conquered death will not let death conquer me. This is our hope, and this is the hope that we are, are called to proclaim. And Jesus says, when we live as people of hope, not only in the midst of the normal hardships of life, but when we live as people of hope, even under the persecution of the world, we will have an opportunity. We will have an opportunity to bear witness to our King. We will have an opportunity to, to, to speak the truth of who He is and what it is that He has done for us. And ask yourself, 
How anxious are you about the, the trajectory that, that our nation is on? How, how anxious are you about the things that are going to come upon Christians in the, the, the years ahead and the, the coming generation? It looks like things are going to get worse. It looks like we're on a pretty bad trajectory. I, I will readily admit that. I'm not much of an optimist usually anyway, but, but it, it looks like things are, are headed in the wrong direction, and it can make you nervous. It can make you wonder what's going to become of, of our local churches, what's going to become of the freedom that we enjoy. And I'm not saying that we should give it up without a thought or without a fight, but how would it change our attitude about the future if we heard Jesus say, when the persecutions come, with them will come opportunity. What is your greatest ambition? What is it that you live for? Is not your ambition to serve your king? Is your ambition not to bring glory to him? How willing ought we to be then to endure the persecutions that come, if with them come opportunity? But of course there's a question. Will we be able to, to take advantage of the opportunities that come? Will we be able to, to bear witness? Will we be up to the task that is placed before us? And this is where we come to Jesus' instruction. We see it in verses 14 and 15. Notice what he says. Jesus says, Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Settle it in your minds beforehand not to prepare. Not to think about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it. Now ask yourself, if you knew you were going to have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone, someone, someone important to you, maybe a family member, maybe a, a friend who you've been praying for for a long time, if you knew you were going to have the opportunity, what would you do? I'm guessing you would prepare. I'm guessing you would think about what you wanted to say or, or how you would say it. I knew I was going to have the opportunity to preach this morning, and so what did I do? I, I prepared. That's what I do every week. Maybe you can tell, maybe you can't, but I, I prepare. <laughs> I think about what I want to say. I think about how I'm going to say it. And I've had a number of opportunities over the course of the last year to, to speak in various venues, to, to speak to various groups, to, to speak to individuals one-on-one. -on -one. And in each and every case, unless the opportunity simply presented itself at the last minute, in each and every case, I prepared. I was never on trial. I was never being persecuted. But, but I knew that each opportunity, each talk was an opportunity to, to witness. And so in every case, I thought about what I wanted to say. And I suspect that, that most of you would do the same. If you knew you were going to have a chance to share the gospel with someone, you would prepare. And that's what makes Jesus' instruction seem so strange. <coughs> Jesus tells us not to prepare. He says, settle it in your minds, therefore, not to meditate beforehand how you will answer. Don't think about what you're going to say. Don't think about how you're going to say it. So what are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to, to make sense of this? There are those today who, who believe that pastors and, and teachers and evangelists who spend hours preparing to preach and to teach, that they, they are somehow in violation of Jesus' command. That they are, are acting in unbelief and thereby quenching the, the Holy Spirit. Obviously, I don't think that is true, but, but I think there is something true about what they are saying. There, there is some measure of, of truth in, in what they are saying. And the measure of truth is this, that, that they believe... That when a pastor prepares, 
He is quenching the Holy Spirit. It would be so much better for him to, to speak the words that the Holy Spirit speaks than for him to, to, to speak the words that he comes up with his own, on his own in his study. And if I believed I was on my own in my study, then it would be far better for you to hear the words that the Holy Spirit gave me to speak without preparation than it would for you to hear the words that I come up with on my own. They're, they're right about that. But of course, we don't believe, I don't believe that when I am preparing, I am on my own. On the contrary, I, I believe that the Holy Spirit is with me, that He is leading me, that He is guiding me, that He is teaching me, correcting me, even rebuking me as I study the text, as I prepare to, to preach it. And that is essential. It is the, the work of the Holy Spirit that makes my job possible. If the Holy Spirit were not there to, to give me words to say, if He were not there to give me a mouth and wisdom, then, then this would be a waste of your time, and there is no way that I would stand in this pulpit. But, secondly... <laughs> Let me say that I don't think that, that when Jesus tells us not to prepare, that, that he means his words to apply to the preaching and teaching that is done regularly in the church. It's not the environment that he's talking about. Jesus is, is talking about opportunities to evangelize that his disciples are dragged into by force. He, he is talking about being dragged before kings. And he says, listen, when, when you're dragged before the king, don't think ahead of time about what you're going to say, but, but say the words that I give you to say in the moment. So it would be a mistake to, to take his instructions here and make them universally applicable to all the preaching and teaching that goes on in the church. But here's the harder thing. It would also be a mistake to take these words and apply them to all of the evangelism that goes on outside the church. You see, Jesus' emphasis is not on not preparing for not preparing's sake. Brother, Jesus' emphasis is on trusting the Holy Spirit to give you the right words to say in the moment of the trial. And this is a lesson that all evangelists need to learn. All those who, who bear witness to their king, all those who, who, who seek to, to point others to Christ and to bear the, the, the good news about him, all evangelists need to, to learn to trust the Holy Spirit to give them a mouth and to give them wisdom. We cannot do this on our own. Paul himself, maybe the greatest evangelist of all time, said, who is sufficient to these things? Who is sufficient to be a minister of the gospel? If Paul knew himself to be insufficient to these things, how much more ought you to know yourself to be insufficient to these things? We must rely upon the Holy Spirit to, to be with us and to guide us and to give us words to say when we have opportunity to bear witness to our King. But, we must also understand that these words are not necessarily to apply to all evangelism in all time. He, he's not telling us that, that you must never prepare because pre preparation and depending on the Holy Spirit are mutually exclusive. Do you remember the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples when he sent them out to preach? Back in Luke chapter 10, when, when Jesus sent out the, the 70 and said, go and proclaim the gospel in the cities of Israel, what did he say? He said, don't take any provisions. Don't even take a second pair of shoes. Don't take anything with you. Why? Because you are going to be utterly and completely dependent upon me. You are totally entrusting yourself to God's care for this work. Learn that God is enough. Learn that if he is with you, you have everything that you need. And so he sends them out with an explicit command to take no provisions. 
But that instruction was not meant to be an instruction for all missionaries at, at all times. In fact, Jesus himself later revokes, revokes it. Jesus himself later tells his disciples to, to get provisions together and to, to take them with them. And so his command was a learning opportunity. It was a, an opportunity for those first disciples to learn to entrust themselves. And, and later, Jesus himself is going to say, do you remember? Now take that lesson with you. Do you remember how you lacked nothing? Well, now take that lesson with you. And when you go, don't go, don't go trusting in your preparation, but go trusting in the Lord. And I believe that's the same lesson he has here for evangelists, those who would, who would bear witness to Jesus. He's saying, listen, don't prepare ahead of time. Don't, don't think about it ahead of time. Don't, don't try to write the script ahead of time. Trust the Lord to give you. He will give you the words. It will be enough. And that is the lesson. Whether you have time to prepare ahead of time or whether you, you're speaking on the spur of the moment, you must trust the Holy Spirit to give you the words to say because you do not have wisdom in yourself sufficient to convert anyone. As we evangelize, as we seek to take advantage of these opportunities that will come, we must be holy and completely dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit. We must trust Him to give us a mouth. We must trust Him to give us wisdom. So that the gospel might be proclaimed clearly and boldly. And that it might bring forth the fruit that God intends. So yes, persecutions will come and persecutions will lead to opportunities. And we can know for certain that the Holy Spirit will equip us to take advantage of the opportunities to come. Whether through prior preparation or in the heat of the moment. And if you believe that and if you know that to be true then it will radically change the way you think about confessing Christ before men. It won't necessarily make it easy. It won't necessarily make it comfortable. But you can look past your own insufficiency to the sufficiency that is yours in Christ, knowing that He will make you competent to do the work that He has given you to do. And finally, notice the promise that Jesus attaches to all this. We see it there in verses 16 through 19. What does he say? He says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. We've already seen that, that Jesus tells his disciples that they will be persecuted by those closest to them. They will be persecuted by their, by their family and friends. But now notice what he says about the level to which that persecution will rise. He says some of them will even be put to death. They won't just be slandered. They won't just be badmouthed. They won't just be blacklisted. They won't just have their property plundered. All that will take place. But more than that, some of them will be put to death. In fact, there were many martyrs in the first century. In fact, tradition tells us that 11 of the 12 apostles lost their lives in the service of their king. They died as ambassadors of the gospel. We sometimes say that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And we, we use that logic as a, as a motivating factor to try to endure hard things. But the logic of that statement sort of falls apart when it does kill you. The logic of that, that statement sort of falls apart when the thing that you're enduring is, is more than your body can bear, when it does actually cost you your life. And so we have to say, well, well, was the cause worth it? And sometimes we think that it was. 
There are those who, who have given their life for a great cause, and they have said it is, it is worth it. I think of, uh, we celebrated recently Martin Luther King Day, and, and Martin Luther King lost his life in the service of civil rights, and I think he would tell you that he, he thought it was worth it. It was worth the fight. It was worth giving his life. He knew the risks, and he was willing to, to take them. He thought the cause was worth it. But I want you to notice that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying this is going to cost you some of your lives, but the cause is worth it. The cause is greater than you. And so it's, it's okay that, that some of you are going to lose your life. Jesus is saying something far more profound than even that. Notice what he says. He says, listen, some of you will lose your lives, but not a hair of your head will perish. Even if they kill you, they can't harm you. Again, it's what Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 3. Right before he tells us to be ready to, to give a reason for our hope, he tells us what living with hope looks like. And he says, listen, who is there to harm you? Even if they should cause you to suffer, they can't harm you. Even if they should take away your life, they cannot harm you. And when you live with that hope, the opportunities will come. By enduring persecution even to the point of death, Jesus says, you will gain your lives. Not because your, your endurance is somehow meritorious, not because your, your endurance somehow earns God's reward, but because your endurance is the, the manifestation of a faith in the one who himself has conquered death. And if you serve the king who rules even over death, then death is no threat to you. They may kill you. They may take your life but not a hair of your head will perish. This is the promise that, that Jesus made to his disciples. This is the promise that set them free to take advantage of the opportunities that would come to, to bear witness to Jesus Christ. And we need to know that this promise still stands for us today. Whether we face death or, or some far lesser persecution, not a hair of our head will perish. By our endurance, we will gain our lives. The first disciples had nothing to fear as they waited the day of Jerusalem's destruction. They had, they had full courage to take advantage of the opportunities that would come. First, because they knew the Holy Spirit would, would equip them to, to speak the truth boldly and clearly. And secondly, because they knew that the Holy Spirit would bring them through to the end, that they would not fail to receive their inheritance. Even if they lost their lives, they would not die. And we have that same boldness today. We today, as Christ's people, have nothing to fear. We await that day when he will return to judge the living and the dead. And in the meantime, we have the opportunity to bear witness. And we can trust both that the Holy Spirit will be with us to, to give us a mouth and wisdom to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that brings glory to his name. And that he will hold us, that he will keep us by his power until that day. That he will not allow even a hair of our head to perish. But that he will cause us to live anew with him in glory for all eternity. As his servants who have served him faithfully in this present day. And because such a promise is ours. Because the promise of both equipping and preserving are ours in Christ. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together.